Welcome back. Thanks for listening. I'm attempting to record this episode for the second time. What I'm finding out the more I do this is I'm effective at communicating in the ways I have experienced communicating. If I'm talking in front of a classroom or I'm telling my story or I'm in conversation with somebody it works a lot better because I've I have experience doing that. I don't have experience talking to myself in any other way than really reading and thinking. So when I get on a microphone and I'm looking at my screen and nobody else is in my house it's different and I don't think I'm as receivable and that's basically the main purpose of what I'm doing is to communicate in a way that's effective that I know how to communicate. The issue is <clears throat> I've never communicated without other people around me and I've never done it into a microphone. And I'm finding I'm not nearly as effective at it. I'm getting all sorts of suggestions from people who have been in my classes before to not read script-like because it sounds like I'm reading as if I am reading it myself, which makes sense. Like I have experienced reading, but it's mostly me talking in my head. And when I read on this, it's unappealing. It's droning. It's monotone and it's hard to listen to or keep interested in. So just know if you are listening and you enjoy this content, I'm getting better. I'm re-recording and trying to figure out what it is that I'm missing to keep these entertaining. Or as an, as entertaining as they can be when I'm just talking to you and we're not face-to-face. This is a recovery series on philosophy. And that's not real recovery in general. I just want to do this podcast series highlighting some philosophers and pulling lessons out from what they've taught that can help addicts and alcoholics. And I don't think philosophy is necessarily the solution, but I've seen it in myself that philosophy can become a catalyst to humility. And that's a requirement for long-term sobriety. Learning philosophy or learning history or really or <clears throat> learning anything about the human experience in the past tends to help us realize how good we have it today. And I'm not saying all of our lives are good right now, but a lot of things that we do complain about and that do cause suffering only cause suffering because we have all of our basic needs met. If we were just simply surviving a lot of the stuff that does bother us, we wouldn't have the energy or time to care about. Too many of us take for granted how far humanity has come. Learning about this stuff, learning about historical thinkers, the periods they lived in, is just an exercise in perspective. I know for a fact it's led to a sort of gratitude I never knew existed in me. And I certainly didn't think it would change the way I felt on a daily basis and change the way I deal with problems. 
it's clear that all of us know life used to be full of way more suffering than today. But we don't focus on that fact enough. What we do focus on, which seems to take precedent for some reason, is what's wrong with our life and what's wrong with others. <clears throat> this leads us to believing life is worse than it actually may be. I think this is the one of the things that the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous got right. When you get around a bunch of drunks and talk, you often understand your problems aren't as unique or as bad as you thought. At the very least, you see that people understand you. Don't underestimate how much you can feel different when people start understanding you. A lot of the way we feel is because we feel alone and misunderstood. <coughs> Excuse me. If you haven't caught on either, gratitude is a requirement for long-term sobriety as well. One of those main... You hear it all the time. You're going to get sick of gratitude, but it's put in your brain all the time for a reason. And It's because we want people to think in a way that's grateful rather a pe rather than an, a pessimistic way of thinking. Because all of us in AA who have, have any length of sobriety know that the way we used to think was based on not gratitude, that's for sure. And we know what happens when thoughts of gratitude are nearly constant. It's a you change something in yourself. It's hard to explain it until you experience it. Of course, I bet I'll get a lot of 12-steppers quoting the big book on why philosophy isn't the answer. I mean, in page 62 from the big book, I'm, many of us had moral or philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them, even though we would have liked to. But I don't think philosophy is the answer. It's just part of it. And while I'm sure Bill Bob and many other early founders read more philosophy than the average junkie does today, it doesn't matter what you know until you surround yourself in it and believe in it. You surround yourself in the language of it, you know, in the discussion of it. That's what people are doing in AA when you go, in NA, in these 12-step programs, in any social program like this. We're speaking certain language so that it kind of catches on with you. And if you just stick around it, it happens. To an extent, right? Like the language used around you will affect you. The 12 steps are a philosophy. It just, it works. <clears throat> it's not communicated as a philosophy and it works better than quote unquote philosophy because in 12 step programs, we meet up regularly and we discuss it and we strive to live by it and we see the benefits in it. You know, I'd probably argue that if philosophy was communicated in a receivable way and we met regularly, discussing it in relation to our addiction in life, the same effect would occur due to community, consistency, and the fact that we are seeking truth. This is literally what being a philosopher is. Not to be confused with simply having moral and philosophical convictions galore you can't live up to. I can't live up to a lot of mine, but I strive to. 
Having them is not enough. Knowing is not enough. Supposedly, according to this guy Antisthenes, who was a student of the philosopher we're going over today, virtue is expressed in action, not in thoughts or discourse. Coincidentally enough, the 12 steps promote this regularly. You'll hear it all the time. It's a program of action. I promise you, every single person I've ever met that consistently acts changes their life. The ones who don't confuse action with thinking. They think so hard that they start to imagine they're trying hard. And then they associate trying with thinking instead of acting. Like, you'll see this, I swear to God. Go watch My 600 Pound Life. <clears throat> it's just a show they do a... They do a stomach... I forget what the surgery is called exactly. It's a... Uh, drawing a complete blank. But they reduce the size of your stomach. All of these people think that automatically solves their problems. The doctor gives them a diet, and the doctor's incredibly straightforward. The doctor gives them their diet, they go home, and they lay in bed, and they go, don't think about it, don't think about it. I can't eat that stuff, I can't eat that stuff. Oh, this is hard, this is hard, this is hard, this is hard. But they don't go do anything else to focus on anything else. They go back to the doctor, and they don't, I don't know what happened. I gained 30 pounds after my stomach's 90% smaller. The cravings for food are in their brain. It's not in their stomach. Just because their stomach's smaller doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be less hungry. Well, okay, it means they'll be less hungry, but the cravings won't go away, right? We got to be careful not to associate trying with thinking. There's really little return on thinking past a certain point. Eventually, your thoughts are just promoting feelings that are making you feel worse which like reduces your chances of acting you will never feel like doing anything i i promise you i've spent the last six years of my life staying sober but the last specifically three and a half ish really 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 trying to get better and seeing the results of it and my life now is more set up than it's ever been and I promise you, I still never feel like doing it. It's to the same degree I used to. The only difference is it's a little bit easier to make the choice to do it now. Because I've been practicing. My goal with this is just, I hope you guys can maybe regularly listen to 20 or 30 minutes of philosophy during a commute to work or an exercise. And have it maybe change the way you act in life. I promise you, after some times, this stuff makes so much more sense because you're constantly putting it in your brain and your brain's making certain associations with it, with what's going on in your life. And you're therefore having more options other than just what you always did or acting unconsciously. I'm going on. Either way. I promise I'm going to mess up some names somehow throughout this series. I don't really care too much. I just hope it promotes action and discussion in my life and in yours. Plato, Aristotle, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Kant, Kierkegaard, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca. I'm sure you guys hear these names and they sound familiar and we don't really know why. At least we don't know what these people's ideas were. 
it's un, it's really unfortunate the philosophy has been presented as so intellectual and dense forbidding almost often confusing most works from philosophers require such an insane fortitude to even read let let alone understand at all the average addict has an, a hard time reading a fuck a good book that's easy to read my goal with this is to translate this shit cut out all the garbage take what i want from it leave the rest and hope you guys get something to it. So maybe that one day you're in a discussion and you know about some of these people and maybe your self-esteem's a little bit higher because you listened to this dude talk about it, you know, on this podcast a couple years ago. These are good stories and they stick with us. Because philosophy's so been so hard to read and understand and it's been kept in just like weird intellectual circles... This has led to the average person rarely ever benefiting from what may quite possibly be some of humanity's greatest thinkers. On top of that, when addicts and alcoholics are getting sober, they have even less of a chance to benefit from these thinkers because we're bombarded with other things that somehow take precedent over learning how to think and live. I know meetings and therapy, of course, exercise, medication, are all important components to a successful recovery program. But it's kind of clear, like, there's something missing. I think sponsorship does fill this role. I think if you go to a meeting and you happen to meet somebody who can communicate to you so well that your life has changed, that's where the magic occurs in Alcoholics Anonymous. The problem is, it's rare to find that sort of connection. These people are rare. The fact is, though, we do have time to contemplate these ideas. They just need to be presented in a way that's receivable to the average person. Believe me, in my years working in a treatment center, specifically the past two years when I was building all the curriculum and doing and teaching all the meat of the classes, I've learned nearly every single client enjoys some sort of philosophical discussion when it's communicated in a way that's easily understood that they can relate to their life. This is what the Stoics were so good at accomplishing. Simple philosophical truth without like this intellectual vomit of most philosophers. Luckily, Stoicism has kind of made a comeback in the last, I don't know, 20 years. I'm sure more than that. And I'm positive it's helped many people with addictions and self-destructive behavior. Just, I swear, go ahead and Google how stoicism helped my addictions. Or just wait for my episodes on the three stoic philosophers I'm going to go over. In any event, there's been a few philosophers who have kind of understood that humans get distracted easily and we want hard-hitting one to two liners. And in the 1600s, there was a guy in... France, I'm probably going to mess up his name, La Rochefoucauld. And he kind of knew this. 
he wrote his masterpiece Maxims, which was a 60 page book filled with like one to two sentence observations on the human condition. And I'm going to do an episode on this guy, but too bad. He's not one of those names that are, that's familiar, right? It's not that the vomit's bad. It's just that addicts and alcoholics suck at paying attention. We get to treatment with like nothing. This leads to this weird extreme focus on the external. Okay, I don't want to say it's a weird extreme. It's common focus on the external. Because we have nothing, so we're, we're thinking we need to go get a job, a place to live. And we do need to get those things, but those things will kind of come. They have not much to do with like the meat of becoming better. We want to solve relationships and all this stuff before we settle down and we're able to think internally without distraction. Most people trying to get clean don't even get to the point where they settle down. It's like maybe six months to a year of, it's really fucking hard to stay sober, relapse. The paradox of this is, when you begin to look inside yourself to solve problems, you kind of solve who you are, or you get closer to who you should be. In doing this, you kind of get a better job. It comes. You, you have a more stable household, and your relationships are better. And on top of that, even if you're not doing anything good, but you stop doing everything you were doing bad, that changes your life pretty fucking drastically. It's almost... As if it's backwards. <clears throat> and we hear it all the time. This is an inside-out job, right? Meaning we, we fix the inside and the outside kind of works itself out. But we continue to look to other people in different circumstances to change who we are. We keep thinking that we need to go solve that court thing. We need to just have a couple more days off work to handle the withdrawal. And what we're not doing is really being honest with yourself. I just want to use one more time. You know you don't want to use one more time. When you live as if the outside matters more than the inside, you act like you can do little things that seemingly don't matter because they're not changing outside of us very quickly, right? Maybe you drink on a Friday night when you know you shouldn't be drinking. And it doesn't change our outside that much right away but something triggers in the inside and then six months later our behavior had changed so much because of that one decision that our outside gets fucked up big time again right like we end up in jail does that make sense this is my goal <clears throat> to interpret i wouldn't say i'm the one interpreting anything maybe in one way and discuss most philosophers in a way that the alcoholic and the addict can not only benefit from it, but, by, but be motivated by it. In doing this, we, we'll gain an actual grasp on what these philosophers' ideas were and how they affected the world and maybe how to apply them in our own life. The alternative is continuing to have these names sound familiar but not know why at all. The reason these great ideas have stood the test of time is because they mean something. And it's hard to explain what they mean until you apply it and experience it. The alternative is to keep acting like you know enough and to keep doing what you're doing. I want all you 
to have a chance of experiencing it. With that said, the only way I've had a chance to experience it isn't because I walked into Barnes & Noble and picked up Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling or Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. That's laughable. Beginning this, I didn't understand any of this, and I definitely didn't understand them by reading the original text. Just like you guys will have me on this ride, I've had many people help me, and I continue to today. If you didn't know, people interpret these lessons and spend their life communicating them to others. This is kind of what happens if you get a degree in philosophy. It's too bad that after achieving a degree in philosophy, it's hard to go work at the philosophy store and make a living. I think a lot of these ideas discussed don't enter mainstream because of this, right? They might permeate culture, but people aren't necessarily talking about it that much. In this digital age, it's different. More and more people are flocking to YouTube and podcasts and all sorts of platforms to teach what they know and learn. It's kind of a double-edged sword, right? YouTube basically has algorithms to distract you. And you might start with good intentions, maybe to listen to this podcast or, or something where you learn. And you start, your intention is to do something productive. And then f three hours later, you've realized you've been watching Russian slap fights. Right? It's like, it happens. What I'm getting at is this. Don't listen to this series and mistake me for being any smarter than you. I've simply subjected myself to this stuff and fought off distraction every day. Sometimes I win, sometimes I lose, sometimes I understand, and sometimes I don't. I continue to seek, and that's kind of how I see step 11. Waking up every day and seeking. That's what I want you to do, right? It wouldn't surprise me if any of you knew far more than one of these guys than I do. Any, either way, all this information comes from a bunch of different stuff, stuff I already knew from stuff I've read and multiple sources, but this specific podcast and what I've written and outlined comes from a couple things of Stephen West philosophize this podcast, a great source for anybody listening or interested in listening to philosophy, Elaine de Batome's school of life, Jordan Peterson's lecture series, Ryan holiday's daily stoic platform, YouTube's Academy of ideas, biographics, and more. Keep in mind, I'm trying to keep these short. This one's obviously a little longer because this introduction, but I don't want to lose people in this process. I'm really just taking little lessons from each philosopher and communicating in them in a way that might help alcoholics and addicts. These philosophers were people after all. Not everything they said was truth. And a bunch of them had ideas we should disagree with. But it doesn't change the fact that there's profound truths in nearly each and every one of their works. Subjecting ourselves to different ideas reduces attachment to our own. I don't know about you, but my own ideas are trash. They just get me fucked up, put me in places I don't want to be, and make me into a person I never wanted to be. So take a step back from yourself every day and act with humility. Which is to say, learn something you don't know. It may keep you from future sufferings. So buckle up. I assume there's going to be 10 or so episodes of this. If it gains traction, I will definitely do more.
I'm doing this for me though. I will be happy if I get zero listens. And if I find myself bitching about not getting any listens, I'm going to remind myself I didn't expect it when I started. I'm doing this for me and I'm learning along the way too. It's forcing me to do more research and confront the fact that I don't know as much about these people as I thought. And maybe one day in doing this, I'll have something I created and I can be proud of. I mean, not doing it is just because I don't want people to listen to me. Believe me, it's not fun to put yourself out there. If anyone listens, it's just a bonus. I do want to go chronologically, but I'm not starting at the very beginning necessarily. Like you might know some names like Pythagoras and Zeno and a couple people or thinkers you may recognize before all the philosophers I'm going to be talking about. These would be considered pre-Socratic philosophers. If you want a timeline, you can Google pre-Socratic graph and see when these people lived and who influenced who. This series will start out with a man who questioned absolutely everything and did not give a shit how his opinions were received. He influenced nearly all philosophers in one way or another. He developed a method of questioning we still use today, a method that influenced Francis Bacon in developing the scientific method. He may be the most widely known name in philosophy and quite possibly, in my mind, the most important philosopher to drug addicts and alcoholics. I hope you've guessed it by now. But if not, we're talking about Socrates. Why was his philosophy and way of thinking so important? Wait, real quick. Before we start, Socrates is kind of different than many other philosophers. Studying Socrates has been more frustrating to historians than perhaps any other person. It's literally called the Socratic problem because he wrote nothing down. Nothing that survived, at least. Some say he didn't believe philosophy was meant to be written down, which makes sense given some stuff we'll learn about him later on. I'd argue it's tough to know what he believed in and what he didn't, because he didn't write anything down. In any event, some people did. Everything we do know is secondhand, most specifically from his student Plato and later Xenophon, a contemporary of Plato. Aristotle, you'll learn, did mention Socrates, but he wasn't born until after his death. Cicero was a Greek statesman, and he is talked about sometimes when discussing philosophy. This is only because he was interested in Socrates and kind of called him the father of philosophy, which I would agree with. He didn't know Socrates, though, and he would never been able to. Socrates had been dead a few hundred years before Cicero was even born. I'm going to drop little things here and there as to what we may have known about Socrates and how my idea of his philosophy has helped me tremendously. So here we go. It's the 5th century BC, 2,500 years ago. The city of Athens is undergoing massive prosperity. There's this dude, Pericles, who's in charge. And if you want a good book to read and you're interested in human nature, check out Robert Greene's Laws of Human Nature. He has a great story about Pericles and how he ran Athens in the military and what happened and human nature that got involved that led to its fall. Either way, 
this prosperity led to a golden age of philosophy and culture. Everybody was flocking to Athens, mostly from other Greek city-states. Athenians lived in a democratic society. They loved their legal system and then they, they enjoyed a good argument. Like, it's hard to even think about how that would be unless you actually do enjoy a good argument. But they love to be entertained with theater, and this kind of included the courts. As Stephen West put it in his episode on Socrates, Athenians would have loved Judge Judy. It just would have been something more like Judge Judicles. You gotta, you gotta kind of understand, Athenian law allowed you to take up criminal charges on anyone. Some had their lives changed by a tiny ruling stemming from some neighborly dispute. You really gotta put it into perspective about what it was like back then. There wasn't much to do. Some people had work. I mean, some didn't. But people back then were remarkably similar to us today. I mean, it's common to think they were just more ignorant. But that's definitely not true at all. They had the same brain. Critical thinking kind of was in its infancy to a degree. But the regular Athenian was certainly just as ambitious as we are. And probably more, as you could imagine, they had less distractions. Just imagine living out without most of the things that make you okay with day-to-day -day life. If you didn't have those, you would constantly be striving. You know, we would all communicate more. Probably argue more and watch each other argue more. And this is one of those things we would find value in. You know, that... They would look up to people who communicated really effectively as that's one of the things they did back then. Even if you were poor and you wandered the streets like the famous eccentric philosopher Diogenes, people still looked up to you. You were famed, you know? Socrates wasn't a great sight either. He famously didn't care about hygiene or physical appearance, placing emphasis on the importance of the mind. It's interesting. I think about that. It's There is a quote uh, attributed to Socrates about exercising your physical appearance. I think Socrates was probably healthy. He did live till he was 70. But I think what he's talking about here, or what I'm talking about here, is more of a he didn't care about what he looked like. You know, I'm sure he cared about health and I'm sure he understood that your physical health affected your mind to a certain degree. And if he didn't think this, I mean, I would use the Socratic method on him and just ask him why. I mean, it's very clear that people are healthy, tend to think better and live better lives than people who aren't. Today, though, we tend to look to people who have what we have or have what we believe to be valuable. Like if we look to effective communicators, it's because they have the things that we deem valuable. If it's because they're paid for. Oh, sorry. It's because they're paid for a service and they're, they're kind of held in a certain regard. This is like lawyers, motivational speakers, therapists and stuff. We have to search for a wisdom today in a world where there's just so much more distraction. But you didn't have to search for it in Athens. It was Athens. 
It led to the sophists. It was a kind of teacher in ancient Greece specializing in philosophy and rhetoric. Some taught music and math, but the main value was succeedings. They charged money to teach people. Plato went on to d differentiate sophists from philosophers, arguing that sophists made a living through rhetoric and deception, and philosophers were lovers of wisdom who sought the truth. Socrates was not a sophist, but many mischaracterized him to be, which kind of led to an unfair association with them. Socrates just didn't care what people thought, and I don't think he ever argued this directly. Plato did, though. Plato argues that Socrates did not take payment for teaching. As Stephen West pointed out, the sophists were masters of rhetoric, and what they desired most was success. During Socrates' trials, most historians say he could have won far easier, but Socrates was more concerned with living virtuously, and probably questioned why they desired success so much in the first place which kind of shows he wasn't a sophist. Anyway, more than anything, I want to show why Socrates' lessons can help alcoholics and addicts. Many specifics in his life don't matter. He was born in or around 470 BC and died at 70 or 71 in 399 BC. His father was a sculptor or a hand like a handyman, and it's thought that Socrates kind of did this early on before studying philosophy. <clears throat> you know what's crazy? Athenian law required all able-bodied male citizens to serve whenever they needed to between 18 and 60. So if you were 59 or 60 in, a, uh, in Athens back then, they could just call you to war whenever. So yeah, Socrates did serve in the arm, armored infantry, and he was known as something called a hoplite. Maybe one of you guys knows what that is. I assume, from what I read, it's a guy who uses a shield and a long spear, and sometimes he wears a face mask. Socrates served in three campaigns during the Peloponnesian War, where he was known for his fearlessness and fortitude. Alcibiades, who was a famous general, was said to have been saved by Socrates time and time again in the Battle of Potidae, and I probably said that wrong. Anyway, once Socrates was a philosopher, he simply walked around. He was notoriously smelly as shit and dirty. He was just walking around stinky, asking people questions, like what is virtue, justice, or beauty? He saw himself kind of as a midwife and who delivered not kids obviously but new ideas to the world by asking questions rather than blindly following theological doctrine what he really thought was human choice was motivated by the desire to, for happiness but true wisdom comes from knowing yourself and the more you know yourself the more likely you are to cultivate reason to the point where you lead a happy life Knowing yourself comes from suffering, from challenge and overcoming and struggle. As alcoholics and addicts, we run from sufferings and feelings. We pursue comfort or quote-unquote happiness. And once we sit with ourselves long enough, once we don't allow substances in our body to change the way we feel, we're able to reason better and navigate life more appropriately. 
The problem is early on we have such a big neuro association that no drugs or drinking equals pain. And it does for a little bit. But not that long. If you truly knew yourself, you'd know what was coming after this. And what makes the pain so worth it. But it takes time though. And often a lot. And today it's difficult to sit with the way we feel. The fact is, you don't know what it's like to be off drugs for a significant period of time. And I'm talking multiple years. You have no idea how much happier you could be. How, how you could get to the point where not only do you not want to get high. It's, it's like it doesn't compute in your head because you do have so much information. Does that make sense? It's not just addicts and alcoholics who don't know themselves. I don't think most people these days do. They're chasing happiness. They're always moving that line farther as if they're going to find true happiness outside of themselves. Happiness comes from knowing yourself and navigating suffering like it's inevitable. Isn't that the first noble truth of Buddhism? Life is suffering. It's certainly intrinsic. It's an intrinsic part of it. The problem is al alcoholics and addicts have undue suffering. We have suffering that we've already had before over and over and over again. We keep learning lessons repeatedly. Either way. Sorry. Athens had political shifts. And they were going back and forth between democracy and some other shit. Socrates ended up pissing enough people off. Asking questions that he was brought to trial. It's funny when... Someone is right. I'm sure a lot of you guys can relate to this. They piss us off first. You know, when, when somebody allows us to see reality, it, we automatically act defensively. Socrates had the option to flee. And he didn't. He had no interest in that. The whole story of his trial and his defenses... His reactions, all of it's cataloged by Plato in the Apology. Basically, Socrates was charged with corrupting the youth and denying the gods of the state. It's funny. It's called the Apology, but Socrates didn't apologize for shit. He refused to grovel or appeal to the court in any way at all. Really, I mean, he was, I mean, you, he was being brought up on some fucking stupid charges that had a lot to do with how the public saw him rather than what the charge actually was and if he did it or not. It's weird. You know, he, he had a chance to have his family appeal to the sympathy of the court and he refused. Socrates, he lived his entire life doing the right thing, not doing this or that so that something happened living transactionally, expecting. He wasn't going to argue so that he could be acquitted. That's what a sophist would do. When asked what he thought about the charge of corrupting the youth, he asked if corrupting someone was harming them, and why would he intentionally harm someone who could overpower him? Right? He was a 70-year-old man. It was a bad argument, but... His intention wasn't to make a good argument. He wasn't making decisions so he was going to survive. He was doing what he thought was right. 
and that definitely wasn't begging for mercy or manipulating the court. He spent most of the time, again, defending who they portrayed him to be, like why he didn't bathe or live like other people. Anyway, when asked about his charge of blasphemy, essentially, like denying the gods of the state, he said, You have often heard me speak of an oracle or sign which comes to me and is the divinity which Miletus ridiculous in the indictment. This sign I have had ever since I was a child. The sign is a voice which comes to me and always forbids me to do something which I am going to do, but never commands me to do anything. And this is what stands in the way of my being a politician. You know that thing? That thing when you're about to get high and it tells you you shouldn't do this and you do it anyway? You know that thing that tells you maybe you should exercise? You know? Maybe you shouldn't just sit here? Socrates called this the daimonium. There's many names. His daimonium, which followed him around. He called it his Socratic daemon. Basically, I think what he was referring to was his conscience. And that voice in your head that already knows what's right. What made Socrates different was he listened to it. And he didn't listen to it when it was convenient. He didn't listen to it when he might get something. He didn't even... He listened to it because it was the right thing. You know? He followed what it said because for some reason he knew that it knew what was right or wrong. Anyway, he was found guilty. In Athenian law, however, there's there were two votes. There was one for punishment and one for sentencing. He was able to address the court for leniency before sentencing. And he told the court that the government should give him free meals for asking questions as he was doing the Athenians a service. After he said that, this is what's wild. More people voted to put him to death then voted he was guilty in the first place. Plato wrote, Socrates drank the hemlock mixture without hesitation. Numbness slowly crept into his body until it reached his heart. Shortly before his final breath, Socrates described his death as a release of the soul from the body. Think about this. Socrates knew that arguing to avoid death meant he knew what death was, and he certainly did not. He never acted as if he knew. Right? Because, think about it, if he was saying, please, help me, please don't, don't sentence me to death. I didn't mean to corrupt the youth. Right? That was not my intention. His voice would tell him in his head, but you don't know if death is a good or a bad thing. Most humans act as if death is the worst thing that can happen, but it could be the best and we really have no idea. When we act like we know things, that's when we make problems. We use because we act like we know the craving will never go away. 
the worst thing to happen is not the event, but the event and losing your head. Socrates knew living as if you knew what was going to happen could hurt you. We react to tough situations all the time, only to make them even harder to deal with because who knew we have terrible patterns of reacting. This is acting as if you know. Socrates' lessons are important to addicts and alcoholics because he implores us not only to question everything, but most specifically, question yourself, your motives and your desires. Question your beliefs. Socrates' message was to stop acting as if you know so damn much. It's hurting you and it's hurting everybody else. His message was, spend time thinking constructively by honestly asking questions, figuring out the answer and acting accordingly. You can feel great, you can feel terrible, but as that student of Socrates said, virtue is in the action, not the thought. You need to act as if you don't know, which kind of means you should prepare, right? Like if you don't know what's going to happen, the only thing you can do is to focus on yourself, right? Coincidentally, this is what we do in the first eight steps before we make any direct amends. Because by step nine, we're acting more in accordance with the truth. We're preparing ourselves. We're asking questions in a step four. I think boiled down, Socrates' philosophy is never act in a way you know you shouldn't act. And I know that simplifies recovery a lot. But Socrates would ask, how hard do you even try and for how long? Socrates wanted us to be more conscious of what we do, down to every second. We normally only try to do that for a day or a week or a month. But we don't remain consistent because we start to believe it won't lead to something worth it, so we stop. That sounds like we're acting as if we know. We give up. In a moment of pain and struggle, we give up. We sacrifice our entire life to make one moment livable. That's the problem. And yeah, maybe I am simplifying recovery down to choice. But when we're talking about Socrates, that's what he's saying. You do have choice. You do have the power to question. Do you even try? And every time you failed, can't you trace it back to giving up trying? What do you believe in enough that you would die for? Here's some Socrates quotes. I love quotes. The greatest way to live with honor in this world is to be what we pretend to be. Right? A lot of times we pretend to be something, but we're not actually being that person. You can think about this in many different ways, right? You can think about this in buying a car that's too expensive for you to buy. What he's saying in this instance is don't buy the car. Make enough money to actually buy the car and afford it. Right? 
The only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing. When the debate is over, slander becomes the tool of the loser. There is only one good knowledge and one evil ignorance. And my favorite, and we'll leave it at this. To find yourself, think for yourself. The unexamined life is not worth living. <laughs>